Hello there and welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Sarah from Sarah Faruya Coaching and this is the Legends Podcast. I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and I want to tell them and share them. These legends are a collection of people who I have found during my 20 years in Tokyo and before. All of them are brilliant people. And when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal, and we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, eco-feminism, and more. We have elite athletes, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Hello, everybody, and welcome, welcome, welcome to this The Legends podcast. It is February the 25th, 2021, and we are just entering the one-year anniversary of the COVID-19 situation. Um, so many of you, I know, will be in lockdown at this time, but I'm hoping if you're listening to this in the future that you're, you're freely listening to this somewhere, waiting for some friends to rock up and hang out with them. Um, today. Um, I believe there are many, many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories. And I'm absolutely thrilled today to be meeting with lovely, lovely Vale Fletcher. Hi, Vale. Hi, Sarah. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, she's there from her beautiful barn with all her gorgeous crockery in the background. So um, I was really interested to know about Vale because what my best friend lives in the US and she knows Vale's husband and so do I actually from the early 90s so that's a little fun fact M me and her husband Greg no contact at all for 30 years <laughs> and then you know he popped back into my life with by way of Justine who went to stay with them on their farm that they live on now this piqued my interest I started following on Instagram and I was fascinated and I was absolutely right so when I asked Vale to send me her bio thinking she's a lady who lives on a farm and I'm going to <laughs> interview her her bio tells me an even better story. So I'm, I'm happy to, to note that my, my hunches and my intuition are on point. So Vale is a New York native and an associate professor at a local university. She spends her days teaching on campus or at home researching, reading, writing, and envisioning what's next for their farm. Her research has taken her abroad, most recently to China, Tanzania, Zanzibar, Rwanda, Nicaragua, Austria, Ethiopia, Uganda, and South Africa to explore nature, ecology, and environmental conflict. She loves supporting local artisans, big thinking, yes, creative endeavors, flowers and perfumes, pretty things, and Mexican textiles, ventures with dear friends. <laughs> so that's real. Oh, How absolutely fascinating. I hope we can get into this a little bit later. Um, so why don't you tell us just where are you right now? Which part of the States are you in? So yeah, I am on, uh, well, currently I'm in my barn, on yep. my farm, 
And our farm is located on Savi Island, which is on unceded native land. Um, so it's Savi Island, that's the colonial name. It's actually, I think, more uh, appropriately named Wapato Island after the Wapato peoples. And Savi Island is a the second largest river island in the United States. Mm -hmm. It's twice the size of Manhattan, just as like a, a point of reference for other people that are aware of Manhattan. It, that's another big river island in the United States. So I live on this island, on this farm, and it's sort of, it's really unique because it's actually still inside the city limits of Portland, Oregon. So okay. we're actually out, just outside what's called the urban, uh, uh, growth boundary or the UPG, uh, you know, if you want to be with the vernacular. And so, yeah, I live on a fiber, honey, and blueberry farm inside Portland city limits on a river island. Yeah, that's where Absolutely I am. Absolutely amazing. So, um, thank you. So let's, um, let's get into it then. And thanks for all that background and, um, and talking about it in that way as well. It's really fascinating already in the first minute I've learned about how to talk about lands and um, where these places are and the different, different ways to refer to land. How interesting. Okay, so tell me about your background, your childhood and your ancestry. Okay. Oh gosh, I'm like, uh oh, I feel like I'm already like, oh, I feel like therapeutic. Okay. <laughs> I just need to ask this to everybody. I'm not a therapist, I'm a coach, I'm a therapist, I can't go there, but go no. right ahead. You're better off, Sarah. Here. Uh, so, yeah, I grew up in upstate New York in a small um, town, just about two hours north of New York City. It's called Binghamton. And, you know, just grew up in sort of the 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 suburban 1980s dream life of the United States, which is to say, a very boring sort of upbringing, um, and kind of you know navigated my way from there to you know I'll skip through like two decades uh, and you know ended up at the University of Massachusetts Amherst for undergrad and continued onward uh, to get my master's and then my PhD at the University of New Mexico. And oh, if we found the way, I'm pretty adventurous. Yeah. I used to. Oh no, it's okay. You're good. You're good. Keep going. It's a very a being frozen is a very appropriate uh, podcast moment. I think for this <laughs> period of time. I apologize. Um. So yeah, and so I yeah, I've just kind of been adventurous along the way. I'm. I used to work in Yellowstone National Park during the summers. And that was sort of a really big awakening time for me to kind of go back, you know, to, to work in Yellowstone National Park is a little bit like going back in time. You get a glance, you get, a, you get to look into the, the past in terms of what nature, right? And I'll use nature in quotations here because nature is sort of, you know, it's contested. Um, that was sort of my first real adult reintrodu reintroduction to what could have been. Mm -hmm. And that sort of began a sort of a longer exploration for me to turn my research and also just my daily interests um, towards environmental questions. And of course, you can't ask any environmental questions without asking questions about people. So that's sort of the, um, that's kind of like a very broad overview, but 
my parents are both, you know, I think my mom's side traces their, this is a little embarrassing and super colonial, but my mom. Uh, uh, hi, I'm from Liverpool. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hello. Exactly. I know, right? I mean, uh, I say that in, in a comedy way, but yeah, uh, I'm from Liverpool. Okay. <laughs> well, I, like my grandmother and my mom's side, like, you know, she got into the family tree stuff and like traced our, that side of the family all the way back to the Mayflower. Mm -hmm. Right. So we're sort of really proud of that whole, you know, that whole story. Um, and my dad's family, you know, and Americans, U.S. Americans, I think, talk about ancestral things quite differently because we're such a new country, mm. a boring country in this way. Uh, you know, that like my dad's most recent family is from Eastern Europe, Germany, Czechoslovakia. So a little bit of a British background and um, Eastern Europe as well. But, you know, we don't really know that much. We haven't spent, my mom, I think, just did that 23andMe where you trace your recent ancestral stuff back. But I don't know what she's even found. But yeah, that's kind of just like a super broad overview. Yeah. I feel like I really skimmed over things. So feel free to ask me more personal questions. No, I'm just, I'm interested. So this is really interesting because I've always been quite kind of fascinated by people saying, yes, I can trace my, you know, ancestry back to the Mayflower. And I, you know, of course I'm aware of that piece of colonial history, but I'm also, I, I was also kind of really fascinated why people were so proud of that. I'm just, and I'm interested to hear, you're obviously have a slightly different take on it now you speak in a different kind of way. You're a different kind of uh, European-American, <laughs> for want of yeah. a better word. What would you, tell me a bit more about that kind of difference. Tension, I'll call it a tension. tension. Well, I, mean, I, I, think we're, I think we're in, you know, I think, you know, I, I, I think we're in a post-colonial and even a neo-colonial space now where we really are having to sort of have I think much more important conversations or, you know, and I think it's, you know, I think it comes back to this idea of making sure that when we talk about history, we're actually talking about histories, right? That there are multiple, you know, ways of understanding how we got where we, where we are. And so, you know, I, I definitely think that, um, especially in the United States, you know, this, it's, it's a, it's, we're long, long, we're about, you know, hundreds of years overdue from having the really challenging conversation around just the origin story of slavery in the United States and how this country was, you know, in many ways is economically wealthy today as a result of free slave labor. Mm -hmm. And then you have to also sort of look at that juxtaposed with sort of stolen land, right? That this wasn't like, you know, and sort of when we were in elementary school in the eighties and, and even I think still today, this story gets told like, you know, Christopher Columbus arrived and the lands were just empty, right? Which is obviously just not the case. It was full of a hundred million native, uh, native peoples that from many different, you know, uh, groups and backgrounds. And so, yeah, I think that, you know, it, it's, it, you know, it's, a, I think it's a really important topic that everybody's sort of talking about right now is really about migration, right? And I think that, um, I mean, I think, I'm sure this exists even in Europe as well, but in a different way. But ultimately, we're all from the continent of Sub-Saharan, we're from Sub-Saharan Africa, every human on the planet, and everybody's been colonizing the planet 
as they've gone along. But I think there hasn't been as much sort of reconciliation, right? And sort of what did that mean to do that, to show up and just take over a place? So yeah, I think we've been having a more robust conversation about land acknowledgements and and making sure that we understand our history, right? There's, a, there's implications for who we are. And I don't know if you're familiar with the work, um, it's, it didn't start with you, which is a, it's a book and an idea about trauma and how trauma is intergenerational, right? So you actually experience the trauma of your grandparents in familiar with, if you're not familiar with your, the trauma legacy of your family, it's actually like, you can't fully understand yourself. So I think it's, I think it's more important than just recognizing people and histories, it's also sort of, I think it's, it's required for us to even understand who we are, right? As individuals and then obviously culturally, but blah, 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 sorry. No, 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 please keep going. This is absolutely fascinating. And I just want to kind of piggyback on the back of that with my own story Maybe. about that. Maybe. And the having, you know, with everything that happened last year, I joined a course called The Evil Behind Your Love and Light. Wow. which is right which was run by a kind of sacred council of uh, women of color mainly uh uh black african-american women yeah. and um they talked a lot about this trauma yeah. and they were like you deal with yours and we'll deal with ours kind yeah. of thing yeah I, I started to think about and she, they really said like you guys you and again white is a construct but you white people yeah. You have so much trauma yes. because of what you've done, you don't even know. And instantly I thought two things. So it's called the evil behind your love and light for a reason. So I'm a coach, right? But I kind of, I have one, I used to have one foot in what I would call the spiritual world. Sure. But um, I enjoy that. I used to enjoy a crystal, waving a bit of sage around. That had been imported from somewhere, which actually goes against the whole the whole idea of using local stuff for your ceremonies but hey I didn't know that until last year you know <laughs> crystals what <laughs> again it's like what I like them they're in my garden now decorating it so there was that side of it and then but then there's also things like past life regression mm. and things like that so I I've dabbled into that somebody's you know bought me a case in that not once has anybody said to me Oh, you're from oh you're from Liverpool. Oh yeah, you, I'm sorry, your your um your family um are deeply traumatized by having loaded slave ships up. Yeah. Not one. Yeah. So then I was like, well, maybe that's just a whole heap of bullshit because if you're kind of appropriating from somewhere else a, a, a technique or a indigenous technology, but you don't know your history. Yeah. Of course, if that's if that's embedded in a history, then the verbal history exists as well. But if you've done a course in it for a year with somebody who did a, who's, you know, living in California or something like that, or whatever I'm making a, then that make that, that, that makes me very suspicious. And then I was like, Oh, why is this happening in my business? Yeah. So then you have to put it back on yourself. So there was that side of it. And then on the trauma side that I think you've just spoken to, it's like, I come from Liverpool. So somewhere somebody went, can you just open that ship up and get the cargo out and they open it up and it's full of people. And then, yeah. holy, and half of them aren't even alive anymore. Yeah, yeah. Oh, just, just 
I'm sorry, I, I, I'm going to say this, but and it's really controversial. Don't worry. If they're not, just throw them overboard. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, wow. So then instantly, and this is really hard, actually. Uh, and, and again, forgive me for being so very, you know, me-centric here, is um, to, to go from being like, I'm really proud of my lovely maritime city and the Beatles, to being yeah. like, sweet Jesus, there's a lot of trauma in that in those docks. Yeah. And a lot of bodies. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Oh, oh, I do. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because, you know, I'm also interested in the, I, there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Yeah. In addition, right, and I think more people are familiar with that, but this whole sort of, you know, this newer sort of discussion about trauma, right? One thing that I'm being really sensitive about is that it's often framed in a way like, oh, you know, BIPOC bodies or, right, bodies of color or, you know, indigenous bodies or poverty bodies. And the truth is, is that white people, the colonizers, right? You don't, you don't get out without being traumatized by, by, by being a part of the violence, right? Yeah. Acting in violence. And we know this, this comes out of like, and this is kind of vulgar, but we look at what happens to prison guards, right? People that are responsible for a living to police and surveil and be sort of like, dominating right yeah. it changes you we also know this comes out of slaughterhouses right the people that are like responsible for over and over and over every day killing something yeah it changes you and it's not insignificant it is actually incredibly significant and so i think it's you know and we know that you know people that work in slaughterhouses it's high turnover but they're also much more likely to be violent towards other people, right? And so of course, right, the colonizer, the, the settlers that were have to inflicting all this violence have so much unprocessed trauma that we still like, even though, and this is like a very common thing to say in the United States, but I wasn't alive then. And it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. It's intergenerational, it's in your DNA. Like it's, it's, it's here for you. It's actually one of the ways that they've identified it most strongly is in language. So some of the initial research about it didn't start with you came out of examiners, right? So what they found is that- Sorry, they found you repeat that, examining? Examining, um, listening to the grandchildren of Holocaust survivors right. talk about the world, not even necessarily about their grandparents surviving the Holocaust, mm -hmm. but they actually just used language. Yeah. It was different than their peers. Yeah. That was this like, you know, meaningful um, representation of a group of, a group of children that weren't alive, weren't even alive in this, the next generation, but are in the third generation removed and they talk differently yeah. because of that trauma. Yeah. And, you know, language is not just a tool. It's a, it's, it's, it's a symbolic representation of your experience of the world. It's an incredibly powerful thing to pay attention to. So I think it's, you know, there's really some super like white people, like, and especially in the United States right now, we're having this Black Lives Matter, racial justice, anti-racist movement. I mean, it's, it's, it's powerful. It's not the first time. It's not a moment. It's a movement, right? 
but it's fairly interesting to see white people still think that it's about black people. Yeah. It's no, it's, it's about you, you white person. Like you have to do so much work to unravel your trauma. Like you're all messed up. <laughs> like I would say, you know, I would swear, but I don't totally want to do that. But if- Oh no, please do, please do. Okay. I'm quite happy for swearing. Yeah, yeah, fucked up. So I'll, I'll break this deal for you. Um, no, I, I, yes, this is, this is such an important conversation and I want to be very clear for the listeners here that what Vale and I, because I, I kind of know that we're, we're talking from the same playbook here and both of us are in like maybe 1% process of all of this stuff, I would say, is that it's, we're, we're not trying to, to, to turn this back. So it's like, it's our trauma too. That's not it. That's not what we're doing here. We're not going, but what we are doing is we're moving, we're just doing a slight tiller shift away from, until we know what that tiller shift means, um, is away from being like, oh, we are sorry for what we did to all the trauma we caused to the people we colonized. And now we will help you to heal yourselves. That's not it. That's not it. The trauma is inherent in the whole system and we own part of that because of what our ancestors did. Mine in Liverpool and yours wherever. So it's, 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 it's a different kind of conversation. It's that acknowledgement that like (laughs) there's different, I mean, I know one of the things that um, the the people I learned from in the summer and I I will probably butcher this, it said was um, we should heal separately actually. And my yeah. healing is not their business. And their Absolutely. healing is not my business. My healing is their business because if I don't heal, then I pass on the yeah. same inherent sense of superiority and that kind of defensiveness that comes with knowing something inside, deep inside you, knowing something so deeply, mm-hmm. which is I think what you're talking about with this ancestral trauma idea. I'm just working this out as I'm speaking. Yeah. Um, and then you become defensive and you have to defend your position as the kind of default position. And it feels very uncomfortable to, to surrender some of that notion. Yeah. Well, listen, I think you're exactly right. I appreciate that reorientation to make sure that our, we're being really clear, right? We're not talking about healing. Like I'm not asking like white people to heal like they've been traumatized in the same way, but as the perpetuators of violence, right? You uh-huh. have to you have to see that when you act violent, that is a form of that, that, that ability to be that way and to perpetuate violence needs healing, right? You need to heal from that ability, right? Those actions. And so, and I think that, right, part of the reason white supremacy and is still such a big deal is actually in large part because of white people's like, one discomfort and I think you named it there's this real sense of defensiveness which just let it go you know like that's one of the most challenging things to do and it sounds I'm not trying to say it's easy but it's actually like here's the thing you're gonna get you're gonna get you're gonna be better off right and you know this because you coach people but like anytime you work on letting go of things things you don't even know you carry I mean you're just you're just opening up so much extra space in your life and in your heart to sort of be a more whole, kind, loving person. And so I always think like, you actually get a return on this investment, like yeah. in dividends, you know? Yeah. Um, 
but no, I get it. You know, I talked to my mom about racism and I said, mom, you're a racist. You know, she's a 73 year old white woman and, you know, very liberal feminist grew up sort of thinking, no way am I racist. And I think, you know, I, I said, you know, mom, I sort of every white person is a racist. And she was like really upset about this. And I said, listen, here's the thing. I think you're coming from it. I don't think you understand that when I say you're a racist, I'm not saying that you individually, right, are mean to black people or brown people. Like, that's not what I mean. It, racism is not individual acts of meanness, right? <laughs> it's participating in structural systemic systems that keep other people oppressed and marginalized. I get it why she was defensive at first because who wants to be, you know, nobody wants to be a racist. Yeah, exactly. But not wanting to be it doesn't mean you're just not what you're not one right and i always tell people assume that you are because that's the safer assumption and then you can begin like if you believe that you might be racist at least then you're paying attention to it but anyway paying attention that's in yeah and i was you know it, one of the things that really kind of made me go Oh, like again I'm a coach right so I read a lot and I read around my subject and I've got bookshelves full of great books and I was like huh like so we were I was talking like thinking about bias right cognitive bias yeah. and confirmation bias all those kinds of biases <laughs> I just looked at my bookshelf and it was like just a wall of white people and it's like how can I not be biased yeah how can I not be biased right. And then, so I had to remedy that because, you know, and, and then that, because that, and I just kind of did that in the background. I told a few people what I was doing, but it, it's like, in order for me to undo 50 years worth of, of reading, I'd have to, for the next 50 years, not read another single white author, right. <laughs> uh, which seems a little bit radical, but it was, um, again, I'm not trying to kind of try and sound virtuous or anything, but it's simply, because I understand psychology and because I understand biology as well, human biology, is that in order for me to rewire, I had to just read only non-white authors last year yeah. to start to just at least, like we're talking about vernacular, we're talking about the way that people talk, we're talking about the language that people use. Otherwise, I'm just feeding myself the same, same stuff again and again and again and again. Of course, the whole of psychology is built on the back of that kind of stuff as well. But I think we're waking up a little bit. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not using that wake up word anymore because it's been appropriated so many times. So I'm just going to say uh that it opened my eyes and opened i guess my bias up a little bit more but again it's just like at one percent it's just one percent that and you have to be robust and you have to be able to manage your nervous system because otherwise you'll just be on the defensive all the time and that creates the whole fragility thing and it just creates perpetuates more and more and more and more of the same interesting there eh? No, but, and I know what you're, but you're, you know what though, Sarah, what you're doing with the reading, what you're noticing, right, is you're, you're looking around your environment and you're looking for patterns that maybe we're taking for granted, right? The fact that you're reading all these, you know, white thinkers, right? And I think, right, so what you've started to do and what we'll name that in sort of the academic world, you've started to decolonize. Okay. That's, that's, we're in, a, we're in the, the, like, that is kind of what everybody is being asked to do. you know invisible structures that treat different people differently yeah. well it takes in our case when we talk about it as two white women right 
what we're yeah. doing is we're, we have to decolonize and it's a process of decolonization. And I think one of the, one of the first things you can do is say, who am I listening to? Who am I reading? Who am I watching? Right. And in, when you start to say, well, I'm going to read more BIPOC writers or listen to more BIPOC people, right? What you're doing is decolonizing, right? Your information. You're saying my information was colonized. I was getting only a very specific and it was so dominant that it was invisible. Like you couldn't have known, right? Yeah. So I think what we're asking everybody to do is just start looking around your life and look for ways to decolonize spaces, right? And so one way is that we're doing that in the United States right now, and certainly in Portland, Oregon, is we're, we're renaming things. And a lot of people think that's sort of silly, right? But like I come back, that language and that naming, it's evocative, right? It's it, it's it's a message, right, about values. And, it, and it's not that you want to do away with your history. It's actually about just foregrounding different histories, right? Because singular histories sort of create these worldviews. But I think it's about, there's all of these things we have to do to decolonize. And I think you're right. Just reading more BIPOC folks is one of the best things you can do, right? Yeah, and, and, so, and a couple of other things on the back of that is, and also not treating it like a novelty, treating it like I'm reading an author that I wouldn't have, that wouldn't have dropped into my algorithm had I not clicked that on Audible or clicked that on Amazon, you know? Algorithms yeah. are important. And, the, and also you don't ignore, you don't, it's not, a, it's not a binary thing where suddenly I'm like, and now I ignore all that psychology research because I'm doing this now. It's like, no. I think the key word you said there is information. It's just yeah. kind of deep diversifying your information. Yeah. It's making sure that you, it, it's, it's allowing yourself that it's humbling yourself to more and more information and more voices. Yeah. And it really, 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 really surfaces your inherent racism when you're like, oh, oh, you're trying too hard or you're, or like, oh, look at you trying to be PC or something like that. It's like, I'm reading an author, an author with, a, a different skin tone to my own and you're saying and you're making me you're trying to shame me for that how odd how very very odd you yeah. know it's very very strange isn't it this whole I mean uh, yeah uh it's it's a uh, it's a whole thing and it's it's an absolute delight to be able to talk to you about it in this way as well it's really um it's very freeing actually when you said like opening space up inside you to be more kind and to be more creative and to have you've got more space for thinking for reading for absorbing things for being less defensive for being less unkind for being less cruel for being less shaming it just opens up so much. I, I literally felt my shoulders go down a centimeter when you were saying that it's like whoo and that allows me to have more information from more sources come into me as well because I'm not constantly defending my position as I've been taught. Yeah, and I think defensiveness is actually a tool here. Yeah. I, you know, I encourage students to say, you know, we're really, you have a really remarkable tool that can help you find your way here, which is pay attention to your body, right? Yeah. It's really embodied, like intuitive way, and you know all this, but-, no, but no, I, I'm learning all no, the time. No, but I mean, I, but I, you, you, you have a lot of familiarity with this idea, but, but you know, it's like, that's exactly what I tell my students is that a lot of the topics in my class make people very uncomfortable. And I say, and I, I sort of, you know, I, I sort of say up front, 
I really want us to sort of, un, I want you to listen to that discomfort and pay attention to it because often, right, it's the birthplace of learning. If you can go into that discomfort and sort of say, why do I feel defensive? Why do I feel like angry, right? I tell my students, if you're angry at me, I have to tell you like on an interpersonal level, I don't like that feeling. Like I don't like people to not like me. I'm such a woman in that way. <laughs> a feminist apparently. Um, <laughs> But, but I also think, but that discomfort and that anger towards me actually tells me that we've gone into a place we need to get to, right? We, it's like I said, it's the birthplace of this sort of, this, this unlearning, right? This, this, you know, opening up new ways of exploring these ideas and that's what we have to do. And so to me, it's like, if you're not uncomfortable, if you're not feeling defensive, I'm not pushing you hard enough. Interesting. So let's get into, let's get back to you because we've kind of, well, it, this is about us, right? <laughs> it's all about us, but so let's get into that. So tell me a bit more about your academic background then before sure. we get to the farm stuff. So tell me more about what, how, how did you choose your subjects? You just mentioned there about feminism. Um, what's your, what's your, what's your topics? Oh my gosh. Well, you know, most recently, Sarah, I really just, I talk about, I think, I think about um liberation mm -hmm. and I think that's such a broad term but I I really feel like I've become sort of a macro theorist in that way is you know I I identify sort of most strongly as an eco-feminist but you know sometime I'm more recently I've also been feeling like I have with anarchists and I don't and I empathize with anarchists not because I want the destruction of the world but I think that they anarchist thought I sympathize with anarchist thought I don't want to throw window rocks at you know windows and things like no, that. no no oversimplification of anarchy but yeah. but I really sympathize with this idea that um we have to we have to start over and of course we can't start over, but what I mean though is that we have to make a lot of really big changes. So I spent a lot of time thinking about structures of oppression. I usually begin from an environmental and non-human animal place um, because I think actually talking about non-human animals is a fairly interesting entry point into talking about liberation, mostly because I mean, at the end of the day, so many people like animals and you know, and I think that it's it's an interesting entry point um, to thinking about, you know, what about animal rights and human rights, right? These sort of two big, these are two big ideas. And so when we talk about human rights, I, I always bring up like, what about non-human rights? And non-human rights is, you know, obviously not something that exists in the United States. It doesn't exist in Europe as well. There's only one country in the world that gives non-human animal rights and that's India and it's very problematic as well. But yeah, so generally I, I think about, I just, have, I just have a, had a book come out this week. I'll show it to you. It's called Communicating in the Anthropocene, Intimate Relations. Wait, what? Yeah. Ooh. Isn't it so pretty? It's an edited book with my co-author Alexa Dare. And this is kind of, you know, Communicating in the Anthropocene, Intimate Relations is Basically this, this is like the, what we wrote about in here is basically that it's not about the carbon, right? Climate change is not about carbon. And until we stop talking about it in terms of carbon offsets and you know, um, 
waste and, you know, air pollution, water pollution, these sort of really scientific terms, yeah. you're never going to make it. Right. Because it's really, it's like, you know, when I, when like couples, when I talk about like interpersonal or romantic conflict and I say, you know, when you and your partner are arguing about the dishwasher, it's not about the fucking dishwasher. You know that, right? <laughs> never about the dishwasher. I don't even know if they have, this is, do they even have dishwashers in England? <laughs> I feel like everybody still washes their, like in a very good way. Like I know that, I know you do. I'm kidding. <laughs> But I feel like it's a very American lazy thing to have in the next few minutes. You. I've had a dishwasher for years, but yes, I mean, <laughs> yeah, we're we're much more kind of. How can I say? Well, in England, we're much more. Um, I don't know how to describe it. Um, uh, yeah, we like to be seen to be no doing either. work. I think. <laughs> But I live in Tokyo, and we're even less likely to have dishwashers here. So well, that's what I mean. <laughs> I don't know what a similar like metaphor would no, be. No, that's exactly right. No, everybody will be able to relate to that. All right. Yeah. So it's not about the dishwasher. And I just, so my job, right, is I spend a lot of time thinking about why is everybody talking about carbon? It's not about the carbon. Yeah. It's actually much deeper and much more intimate than that, right? It's literally about the stories we tell about the world, right? And about value, right? And about who matters and doesn't matter, you know, which bodies matter, you know, bodies of water, uh, animal bodies, but also human bodies. Um, and I, so my, my co-author and I were basically like, this is really about intimacy. Ooh. We have, I know, right? I know. <laughs> we really, we really went for it. But it's it's that we've lot we we are actually in a deeply intimate relationship with the environment and with nature, and we don't see it that way. We see it, and we've been raised, you know, post-industrial right industrial revolution, basically disrupted your ability to actually see yourself as a part of the natural world, right? That we are now. We have worked furiously now to dominate and um, consume and materialize the natural world, commodify the natural world, right? We don't, when you cut down a tree in the United States, right, the tree's value is in its lumber, right? And so we're asking questions like, well, how did we get there? That's not, even though that's a sort of taken for granted idea, it's, it's actually happened over a long period of time. You used to not see trees that way, right? You used to understand your place in, was in relation to a tree. Oh my God. Right? And it's like, you know, I don't know if you've ever seen the giving, the children's book, The Giving Tree, right? But it's this really beautiful story and children's books are actually probably, you know, we should all spend a year reading children's books and we might actually do the work we need to do. Because I, you know, I think children's books reveal actually the things we want to care about. So you pick up children's books today, go into a great, you know, independent bookstore somewhere where you live and pick up children's books and take them seriously, right? Like, don't look at them like these are for five-year-olds or eight-year-olds because the stories we tell the children are actually the stories that we want to care about, right? Kindness, 
relationship to trees and, and going swimming in the water and being kind to a duck. And it's sort of a fascinating entry point, but I think that we learn a lot when we look at how we want the world to look to children. And then as adults, we're sort of conditioned and again, colonized, right? This is actually part of white supremacy, to be honest, is that there's this, like we get taught that those things don't matter, right? And I, you know, and I, I think this is obviously, right, a big, a big structure that we're not talking about here in addition to white supremacy and patriarchy is capitalism, right? Yeah, yeah. Capitalism just wants you to make everything a commodity and yep. make it out. And it's, and you know, I get it. And so we've all thinking like, how do we make money? Yeah. How do we monetize same? Yeah. And it's not, and, and so, and then we start having conversations about carbon, you know, and I'm, I'm skimming over like big things, but yeah. like, what are we even taught? I mean, does anybody even know what carbon is? Like, everybody's just like, it's carbon. We got to lower carbon. We got to offset carbon. It's carbon footprint and carbon this. And I'm like, no, it's the fact that you don't understand that like, like, and, I, and I'm sorry, audience, if this sounds like, I swear I'm not like woo woo at all. Um, but well, I, actually, I actually quite believe what I'm about to say, which is like, like trees, like we'll continue with our tree theme. Like, trees are like, they keep you alive. They are literally your co-conspirator and your actual like ability to exist. Like your earthly existence is entirely entangled with like every other like living, um, like, you know, for sure flora, right? And so how did we forget that and come to so undervalue? Right, these these integrally important intimate relations. So that's kind of what I've been thinking about recently is just sort of if we are to survive, we're gonna have to look way more intimately at our relationship with the natural world. And that's I mean, that's gonna be it's like, you know, it's it's just really important. So that's what I spent a lot of time teaching about, talking about are those topics. Was that <laughs> Was that succinct? <laughs> oh my God. Though literally I've just written down here, you've dismantled me. Like the, <laughs> the intimacy piece is so, is like that. I've never considered that before. And I, and, and it, it's, it, it's, it's like a cricket bat in the face of like, whoa, yeah. yes. And that goes across everything. And I think you've just given me my third word of the year, which is, my, my other two are, God, I can't remember now, magic, faith, and intimacy, right? That, that's it. It's intimacy. I need to be more intimately in, in relationship with everything and everybody and everything around me. So I think everybody is a different story because it gets all mixed up. And then I just had, we're not going to go here, Vale, because it's just too much of a, like, can of worms. I've then thought conspiracy theories are a bid to get back to intimacy. Maybe, yeah. I that's just what came up for me, but yeah. I'm not going to go there because it's too much. I can't. I can't even. But um, so, and trees. This is this is again such an incredible thing. I've got hay fever because of the in Japan they they deforested so furiously during the uh, Edo period that they then had to replant and they replanted loads and loads of cedar trees. We call it sugi. And it's yeah. just like, you can see the clouds of pollen coming off them at this time of year, uh -huh. so there's that. 
but there's a beautiful book over here that I've there's there's a you might enjoy this maybe I'll send it to you hang on it's called just enough this is written by somebody who I've seen speak <clears throat> a guy called Asby Brown it's lessons from living green in traditional Japan Wow. But yeah. he also talked about he shadowed and was the apprentice of a guy who um, built temples in Nara, which is a very sacred city uh, east of Kyoto. Yeah. And um, so in the intimacy with trees is embedded in this culture, but got lost along the way, probably colonized by something. I don't know what. And um, so. <laughs> I just lob that in. I whispered in people's ears in the street. Oh, you know? Japan, how dare you? <laughs> um, so um, um, when you build a temple, that tree, the one that goes down the center of a pagoda, has to be a thousand years old. Wow. So the, the, the people who live in that area or who choose the place, and they have to grow it in a very specific place on the mountain as well, so that it's in the right relation with north, south, east, and west, and mm -hmm. that it's in relation with all the other things around it. So you plant a tree a thousand years in advance. So you wow. plant the tree to replace that tree and that pagoda a thousand years in advance. I know. That's wow. the metaphor for everything as far as I'm concerned. Now, because of all the deforestation here, now they have to import those massive logs in from Taiwan, fine, but because you still understand, but then it's, a, then it's become a commodity at that point, hasn't it? It's not become something wow. relational or, or kind of. So like that blew my mind that's another one of those ones where I was like something you know inside your brain it goes like all the cogs start to kind of fall yeah. into place well, I mean that's that is the you know oh sorry that is the kind of a, yeah that's those are the kinds of economies we need to be talking about right planting trees the idea that they're going to be a thousand years old, and 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 finding so much joy in that idea. As you plant that tree, you won't live to see it be a thousand years old. Like you get to be, but you get what do you get? I mean, and I think that that's those types of things. Like that is the meaning that has been shifted, right? out of our lives, right, in general, is that, I, and I think that's what people are doing. They, they want, they need it. They don't even know what it is because they're too busy just buying things online, right? Like, we're just like, must fill the void, must fill the void, and I, and I, I get it, you know? And I, you know, I like nice things too, but it, it's, it's, it's much more, it's deeper than that, right? It's like people are telling, themselves and everybody else that something is really missing and I think that type of idea of planting a tree that's going to live a thousand years it's so magnificent but it's also what's like part of what's missing from people's lives is this connection this intimacy with with other living things that are not humans only I love it and and I think again this goes back to the language that you were talking about earlier then is when you when you plant a tree mm -hmm. that takes a thousand years, how many generations is that then? Oh, it's got to be like fifteen, right? I, I I can't do the maths. That's a lot. Yeah, fifteen generations. So then, the way that you talk to one another year in year out, 
because you have to look at oh that's the tree those or that patch over there is because of this because the light yeah. here, because it has to be in relation to this and the gods and blah 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 it all that stuff becomes part of the language of the and and that's one of the things i think that especially since last year that i understand by being a foreigner in this land is to it's then i start to understand the culture and the culture that I talk about, or the culture that I've been doing in the business world is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. Everybody around me knows that. Yeah. Right? But yeah. I don't know that. And it just helps that really helps me to understand the land and the way that that and, and you can see I don't have the vocabulary for it yet because I don't know how to talk about it. So I'm going to stop. But I hope that you can kind of understand that the word is intimacy. It's it's a it's a remarkable word. And I also love the word flora and fauna. I've lost touch with those too. Yeah. Of moss. And, and yeah, you know, there, there was just enough the exercise of reading children. I can't, I, I can't recommend enough the exercise of reading children's books. I think that there's so much in there. But the, the I think it was the Oxford Children's Thesaurus um just removed a whole bunch of words it does every year it adds words and removes words basically it's supposed to be a reflection of the words that children use you know and they took out and you can actually look at the words they took out and look at the words they added and they took out words and all the words they took out were were names of flowers and birds and plants um, and all the things they put in were things like cut and paste and attachment, like all technology based, right? And so when you start language again, because it's observable, right? In ways that like a thousand year old tree isn't to one lifetime, right? It's, you start to see, right? Oh my gosh, like our language reflects our reality. And if we're taking out, you know, words like, um, what was one of them? Daisy. They took the word Daisy out. Why would they do that? They're everywhere. The ch children don't use that word anymore. But it's, but it's, you know. Okay. And and I also just have to recommend. I, I have a, you know, in addition to so many things, I think this is sort of the fun. Like I, I think the only chance we have of surviving and thriving here at the end of the world. And the end of the world's a metaphor. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> we hope um, is art. You know, I think that art is probably like we've depended in the West in particular on science. Like if we just get more data and more information, you know, we'll, we'll like, we'll think our way out. We're, we're gonna innovate our way out. We just need more technology. And it's like, actually the art is probably gonna be the only thing that's able to do this for us. Um, and so I always recommend people read the poem, The Mad Farmer's Liberation Front by Wendell Berry. And he does a really good job getting at sort of this, this intimacy that's going, right? And um, yeah, I just, cool. yeah. Well, let's start to kind of land now. I'd love to hear then, this seems like a really nice point to come into the Mad Farmers Liberation Front. So tell us about how did the Croft Farm come about and how did you end up there? And what's your, uh, what, what do you do there? Oh, good question. Oh. <laughs> Um, I, you know, it's, it's, uh, I think like many people, um, did I freeze Sarah? Sorry. No, no, you're good. Okay. okay sorry. Um, I think 
I, I mean, I think at the core, it's really simple. We wanted to be able to have more animals. Um, mostly rescue animals were sort of hectares. I think that's what, I think you all use hectares. But we're, Hector, we have seven acres and then we manage four acres of blueberries, organic blueberries. Um, so we basically just wanted to keep, we wanted to be able to be around more animals. And I think originally um, we knew, so Greg, my partner is British and he likes to grow things, I think, which is like every English person in particular, which I know is not true, but he likes to grow things. And he thought, what if I had more space to grow things? And so we got a farm, we wanted more animals, we wanted to grow things. So wait, 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 we got a farm. Okay, so <laughs> so okay. Um, where were you living before? So we were living in the city, Portland. I moved from Portland, I moved to Portland from Los Angeles. I took my first assistant professor job at the, um, in a, at the university in Los Angeles. And then I came up here to the University of Portland and met Greg who was working as a tea buyer. Um, for Tazo, and then Tazo was bought by Starbucks. But we were both living in the city when we met, and you know he's from Southwest England and was totally fine being like a country boy. And I had sort of just moved from LA and was sort of really liking walkability and coffee shops and you know wine, wine pubs and things like that. And but we we sort of thought it would be great if our dog had more room to run. That was the original idea. And we started just looking for barren land. We were really, really uh, uninformed. And we bought a piece of barren land and we basically started to build a little house on it. We built for US standards, a fairly small house and decided to just start living smaller and living less indoors and living more outdoors. That felt really important to us to get a little more this sounds a little maybe too glamorized, but I think we wanted to get more in touch with just sort of more natural rhythms, right? A little bit more away from noise pollution, away from light pollution. I mean, actually, that's one of the things I one of the things I realized really quickly is we bought this barren piece of land and we put a little house on it and then we started to farm. And I'm skipping over some things, but the island has an ordinance called Dark Nights which means you're not allowed to have outdoor, you're not allowed to have exterior lights on at night. Um, and part of, yeah, I know. And I was like, what's this? This is weird, like a front porch light, but we're actually located in the middle of the Pacific Flyway, which is where these millions of migratory birds fly from Mexico to Canada back and forth, you know, twice a year. And they fly and they actually use every single time. They right? use what, sorry? Flight paths. Flight paths, okay, the same yeah, flight and they, paths. And they, and they call them flyways, right? Like a highway, but it's a flyway. So, and we, so we live in the Pacific flyway area, which means birds like are, are using like the area right over our farm as a very, like a high, tra a high traffic zone. And so you can't have lights on because they, don't, they navigate by the stars. Right, so we were like, and the, you know, it took a year, two years for that to really sink in. And to be honest with you, just that reality alone really changed my life. I was like, 
we, we like, you know, when I first arrived, I was like, okay, cool. We have this big open piece of land. We're growing a lot of our own food. We're keeping like, we're rescuing animals. We have chickens for our eggs. We're kind of cool. But it was more just sort of entry level stuff. And then when I started paying attention to dark nights, I was like, at first, like, we can't just have an exterior light on. That's, I don't care, but if I need to go to my car, like, it's pitch black, right? Like, if you're just getting from your house to your car, like, if I'm coming home at, after dark, uh, I just, it was pitch black. And I thought, you just can't have an exterior light on. How odd, you know? And so, sort of, so anthropocentric. Yeah. Right? It's like, humans, come on, I need my light on all the time. Yeah. But then I started to kind of, I actually started to like pay attention to when the birds would arrive and the birds would leave. And it changed me because I actually knew which, which types of birds, when they arrived, what kinds of food or shelter they often sought, you know, ponds or wetlands on the island. And anyway, so we were after that but we didn't, we didn't know how to name that, right? To sort of be more, and I guess like the, in the most mundane way of naming it, just we wanted to be kind of more connected and, and just more able to pay attention to these, these like what I will now call other neighbors, right? Yes. These, are, these are a different kind of neighbor. And now I know that they're my neighbors and that they have a way of living. And I, I think of them that way. I mean, they come here, we have we have about 40 bird houses on the property because I mean, and actually we're full every spring, you know, they're all full. Um, and I like to think, right, that the same bird families come back to our farm every single spring to lay their eggs and, and then they come like, and then their offspring come back. And I think it's actually true. And so I'm now thinking, oh my gosh, we have to get in as, as you saw, right, from my, our Instagram, we clean out the the nest and those are our chicken feathers oh sorry and they so we clean out the nests every year and we get to see a little more of their lives that they use our chicken feathers to create these beautiful nests Unbelievable. You, you're just you're just paying attention you're like other other beings are trying to make it on this planet with us and they have their own pain and their own suffering and their own joy and so we kind of, um, so now we farm using sort of this kind of academic idea of interspecies collaboration, mm -hmm. right? Just like we're looking at how can we grow food and some alcohol, make alcohol and, you know, um, have a really healthy blueberry crop. And now we do fiber. We have a, a, a herd of sheep and a herd of alpaca that we've rescued that we do some interspecies collaboration with, but so we've started to see it as more like a principle of farming that says, you know, our crops are only as successful if we're seeing so many numbers of snakes and frogs and insects. Like we want, like we don't feel like we're successful unless there's actually, we're creating ecosystems in our crops, right? That there is just a lot, we invite a lot of life to be a part of this kind of, you know, more um, regenerative agriculture. And of course we're doing it small scale and there's a lot of, you know, we do a lot of things that are just 
you know, we lose a certain percentage of our crops that we wouldn't if we were being really sort of pest focused. Yeah. But again, there's the language, right? There's the language, a pest. And I'm like, you know, we have about, we lose about 20% of our blueberry crop every year to um, young birds because the blueberry crop comes right around the time that a lot of the fledglings are learning how to fly and their parents are like, hey, we know this spot right over here. <laughs> you can eat as many blue organic blueberries as you want. And we sort of have to go, you know what? That's actually really cool. Yeah. Like the fledglings get to just oh, <laughs> Yeah, here you go. And of course, right? I think that that's always like that's historically been the way many farmers have done things. But again, in this industrial age, you know, that's not at all even close to what's happening. So we're just like this tiny, tiny little speck of like what I would call the resistance, right? Where we're trying to work with nature, we're trying to see ecosystems and habitats as part of what's happening here, right? We put out bat houses. We have bats that now, you know, also spend the year on our property. Sorry, Sarah. And so we have bat houses and we have all these bats that come and stay and they partake and they're part of it and coyotes and I don't know. It's a mess. It's not perfect, but we've learned a lot and we've kind of, it's, it's helped us decenter ourselves, which I think is a really, you know, when we talk about the search for meaning and people sort of feeling really dislocated and where's my place in the world? I think when you decenter yourself, you remove a lot of that angst. Like there's this, there's this general sense that you're reminded that you're just really insignificant. And for, I think for Westerners that are raised in these individualistic cultures where you matter, you matter, you matter. It's like, maybe it's really okay for me to entertain this idea that I'm not that important. And maybe there's some joy that actually comes from that. And so I think that that's kind of, that's part of what we're doing. Love it, love it. And when you were talking about paying attention and the birds arrived and birds leave and what, it's like the fact that we don't, we, we kind of stumble on our language because we haven't got that language that perhaps other, other non-Westernized people would have or farmers <laughs> or people who live off the land still would have is just it's really telling isn't it and having to relearn that language because I think I certainly had it when I was younger because I was raised in the 70s and 80s yeah. so I had some at least language for these things and one thing I absolutely love you were talking about these nests is you know your kids come in with these holding these nests and, you know, I could imagine like a city girl's mum going, get that out the house. That's disgusting. It's put that feather down. It's full of bacteria. You know, it's like, but whereas your kids are coming in going, look, we've got another one. Look at this one, mum. And putting it down and you're like, whoa, and you've got them all lined up. It's just so gorgeous. Well, you know, we try to spend a lot of time in awe, you know, just sort of like that whole like, oh, and I, I actually really, I think sometimes I'm not paying attention to it and it's just like a very natural response, but sometimes I really try to exhaust this like, oh, what? Yeah. And because I think it's, um, I think it's, I think it's important to sort of actually, it's again, it's that embodied expression of like, 
I can't believe this. And I think the nests were such a great example. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I and I always tell this story when I think about this awe. Um, just up the road here in the San Juan Islands, just off the coast of Seattle, um, there's a lot of there's a local orca pod. Um, the resident that spent several summers. I have a colleague spent who spent several summers studying this uh, resident orca pod, and she would go out on whale watching boats and pay attention to how people express themselves when they would see a whale or like when a whale would surface. And, you know, of course a whale surfaces, I mean, what's more awe-inspiring than a whale, right? And so she would record and, and pay attention to how people acted. And she came up with this, you know, a whale comes up, everybody runs over to the side of the boat and they go, oh. And so she coined this term, the orcagasm, right? <laughs> like, oh, you know, like this real sense of like, I like language fails us when we're sort yeah. of really put in like put in this this relation to this intimacy right like just this oh my gosh and so I feel like you know you got to see a little bit of that when we brought the nests inside but I really think it's important to name these types of experiences of awe that actually are central to our well-being. I agree. Oh my God. <laughs> so much part of our humanity, isn't it? That we like, it's like when I can imagine those, when those people see that, that they're reconnected with something again, ancestral, something so deeply necessary to our evolution or something. I I I mean. I try to do this every day. I moved to the seaside from Tokyo. So you can imagine that contrast yeah. uh, a year and a bit ago. So my, I like, I have my desk right so that I can see the sky every day. And we're not friends on Facebook yet, but like I take photographs and call it Skywatch, especially because yeah. of lockdown and stuff like that as well. So every single day I'm like, look at the sky every day. And I don't, and so now I'm getting some kind of, um, how can I say some backdrop, some kind of context for that? Something, yeah, it's it's more than just aesthetic. It seems like it's essential somehow yeah. to my humanity. Interesting. This is so fascinating. It's, it's I think it's a recognition of your of your place among the wild things, right? <laughs> there is the, that you have a place, and again, you're in relation. You're in an intimate relationship. And so you're in this, is it exaltation? Like you're just, yeah, you know, we spend a lot of time about humans being sort of like homo neuron. We're a storytelling oral history group. You know, that's what humans are kind of noted for. We don't spend as much time sort of talking about this embodied relationship, right? That we actually don't need just words Orcagasm, right? Amazing. Yeah, I mean, yeah, and, and again, patriarchal, patriarchal norms venerate the written word above all else. Yeah. And, and I venerate your book, by the way, greatly. <laughs> um, no, I'm with you. And but this, I, I, I'm starting to realize now these 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 conversations that I have with people are are somehow about creating some kind of verbal history. Yeah. Um, I haven't even transcribed them, which is very naughty, actually, uh, for people who don't um, 
here. But um, um, yeah, I don't know, I'm verklempt. It's, uh, it, it's it, and then also this embodied history. And it's interesting because I've been getting into somatics recently a bit more about, uh, um, interestingly enough, a, a, a Japanese Canadian chap, but um, so, so I've got really high context with him, right? Because we're mm -hmm. both kind of displaced, slightly Japanesey kind of culture. But um, yeah, it's it's I, I'm uh, I'm I'm at a loss for words. But like, there's something here about the 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 written, the verbal, and then the the the, the remembering, the 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 embodied, the embodied ancestry, the embodied history, the and this intimacy. I can't come away from this. Is absolutely claiming this word for my year this year, and the orgasm. What that is, it's like more and more and more and more of those, yeah. and that comes back to intimacy as well. I mean, we could go off on a whole thing about sex now, but we're not going to because you need to go to bed and we need to wrap this up. So. <laughs> oh, I'm going to happy hour before I go to bed, but yes! we can do the sex thing over happy hour, but maybe not for the audience. Yeah. <laughs> well, we should probably have another conversation about more of this because this is just, um, to me, this is like sitting around the campfire and passing on the stories. So speaking of which, so what's the story that you want to continue like what what what's next for the Croft Farm and for you, Vale? And what's the what's the message you'd like to leave us with? Oh well, you know, I don't I don't know I don't know, Sarah. I you know I do know that um, you know I'm I sort of I'm in this place of radical hope that I think you know I think right now being hopeful is really radical. Yes, it is. <laughs> I think there's, you know, we've, I think there's a lot of reasons to not be hopeful. So I think to be hopeful right now is indeed a radical act. Yes. And so I think that for me, I'm, I'm, I'm always looking for more water from my bucket here to help myself, you know, figuring out what's, what's needed, what's really needed right now. what part can I play in the storytelling of this time? Yeah. And I do think that, right, I think right now is, is a time to, to talk about storytelling and to talk about how stories tell stories. And I think, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think you, I, you may know this, you may not, but my dad died in December from COVID-19. What? Which, yeah, I know, Sorry. I know. No, it's, you know, it's so, it's so, it's actually kind of the most, and I, and I, you know, to anyone who's listening, who's had a family member die from COVID-19 in the United States, we just hit the 500,000 mark of people that have died in the last, not even year, but I, it just, it's a, it, it's unearthed things, you know, and I think in some ways, right, of course, anytime, um, a parent dies or anybody you're, you know, that's a, a main character in your life dies, right? The story- your doggy as well, right? Pardon? Your doggy too. Oh yeah, my dog died too. Which yeah. was, you know, in some ways, for those of you that are major dog lovers and, you know, that was actually in some ways more immediately hard yeah. because my dog sleeps like on my bed every night where my dad does not, yeah. um, you know? <laughs> It's a different, it's a different character. Yeah. Um, my, my dog is just a part of my everyday life. Yes. But I, you know, I think, I think the, I don't, I don't share that about my dad for any other reason than 
right? It's, it helps demarcate, right? It helps like actually draw a line in your life that I think signals to you that one, our time here is very brief, right? We are here for the briefest of briefest moments. And I think it's, you know, I think it's just a good time for so many reasons at the micro level, at the macro level. I mean, what better than a global pandemic for people to yeah. sort of take stock yeah. of like, what, what do you want? And I think for me, it's actually, there's a really important, I agree, incredibly privileged thing to say about being forced to be incredibly still. Um, and I think, so for me, the last year, it's been a, it's a, been a type of hibernation. Yeah. And, and I think there's somebody writing a, a book which just released called Wintering, right? This yeah. metaphorical idea of like, and again, coming back, the natural world prepares for winter by planning ahead and, and, and recognizing that they're going to be hibernating all winter. And yeah. I think that that's kind of, that, that's sort of the space I'm in right now is sort of saying, I just spent a year of my life in a way that I never thought I would, yeah. you know, and I'm homeschooling my children, you know, the school places are open. So schools have been closed. No childcare has been open. We've, I've been homeschooling my children. I've been department chair. I've been working on this book, right? This book actually went to the publisher uh, October 15th. And so I was sort of all of this to say that I think I, I see it as a portal, right? That the pandemic opens up a portal for us to all walk through and, and figure out, I mean, in the most simple way, like, what are we doing, yeah. right? What, a, what, what, a, what, what matters here? And so I've been, that's kind of the place I'm in is, is I, I know there's lots of lessons to be learned and I'm trying to pay attention to what is the lesson or lessons that feel most important to me. And so I, you can see that my thoughts aren't entirely collected at this well, it's point. it's very but, soon, isn't it? Well, I, yeah, it is. And it's, I'm having this weird place. I don't know if other people are feeling this way, but I'm also- oh, yes. <laughs> what? Yes. I don't know what you're going to say, but yes, I'm feeling things. <laughs> no, I, no, but I, I, I feel like it's been a painful year for lots of reasons and like at a personal level and then obviously at a cultural level, but, but I'm, I'm happy. I'm glad I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Right. Yeah. That, that, um, you know, I, I, I'm glad that things are being stirred and I'm trying to figure out what, what I want and what matters. And I don't really know, but I'm, I'm working on it. I think I'm working on it. That's the most, I think we're all working on it. You know, some people are really anxious to just get back to just having, you know, pubs open and go get a pub with their, you know, glass of beer with their friends. And I am too, at like a very basic level. I'm, but I'm also really hopeful that something else comes, and I and I I think it will, and I do, I hesitate to even name what it is. No, but. no, no, it's unknown at the moment, isn't it? And I think we use words too much. I think we both experienced that today as we've kind of gone <laughs> to try to like whenever people trip on their words as a coach or like go. <laughs> We, I know something's happening. So the next question is always what's waiting to emerge. 
And then sometimes it's just you let the space open, you go non-verbal and just allow that to kind of have some some space to live in. And I just just love that. Um, What's uh, uh, by the way, my mum also nearly slipped away in January from COVID. But luckily she came back. I was, you know, I was I had my passport ready, getting in touch with the embassy to find out if I was be able to fly home. And my brother couldn't even go up from London. So. Uh, excuse me um so um yeah it's and and without meaning to be disrespectful or reductive here uh, I think a virus is also part of the world that we live in um and part of the diversity of our lives if you know what I mean so it's like it goes when we're talking macro like that's super macro right that's another just reminder of who we are and what our place is in this these ecosystems does that make sense Uh, well yes but yeah and i think a zoonotic diseases i don't know like you know if you're familiar with how many zoonotic disease zoonotic diseases are diseases that jump from non-human animals to humans which is what covid19 is and actually there's like tens of hundreds of thousands of zoonotic diseases just waiting to make that jump and so in some ways right i think we're back to this intimacy right that COVID-19 is also, you know, a virus that is a living thing that wants a host, right? Is a, it's an intimate relationship. It's not a positive intimate relationship for us, but our relationship with the natural world, when we push it to the brink, right? Which is what's happened here. Like we were using animals in ways that were not kind and not generous. Yeah. Right. This is one of the ways that we end up, you know, experiencing the negativity of that, like abusive intimacy. Yeah. Creating the conditions. But I've also been reading. I just want to also say that Bell Hooks, just to come full circle, Bell Hooks is like this radical black feminist writer. And in addition to sort of intimacy, right, I think one of the things I'm thinking a lot about, which is a super vague, if you really think about this concept of love it's so big that it almost doesn't mean anything. Like, I love you, Sarah. It's like, what does that mean, right? And so- It feels great. (laughs) Okay, good. Love you too. But I mean, we just don't grapple. Like love should be something we're talking about and thinking about and intellectualizing way more, right? And I think, you know, you have a person, somebody dies in your life and you're really thinking about like, the relationship and part of the love is a big backbone of it. But Bell Hooks does such a great job talking about love in, in outside of like romantic relationships, which is kind of the way we often talk about love the most in like the public discourse. So I think that's the other thing I've been thinking a lot about is if you want to listen to like black women talk about love and love as action, I think that that's also a really good like place when I think about starting the farm and this cultural moment in in many ways right that's the kind of thread to for me um, that ties together all of it which is this idea of love as an action and love is this big part of you know how I don't just love my kids and love my partner I, I enact love in so many other ways and so that's kind of, that's been, that's been an important thing for me this year as well, yeah. right? It's this hierarchy of love. 
right? Which I kind of hate. And you know this, like with girlfriends, it's like, why are my girlfriend relationships less important than my romantic relationship, which isn't even that romantic anymore, you know? <laughs> so, like, yeah, 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 uh, yes. And there's a, actually in my coaching group, there's a lot of talk of that. There's a lot of talk of treating your intimate, uh, non-romantic relationships with the same reverence and the same intimacy as you would a romantic relationship. I resent the fact that I was sort of, I, I believed this kind of narrative of like, you know, for me and the, like where I came from, go to college, meet somebody, get married, have kids. And I resent the fact that I wasn't like, actually just like fall in love with all your best friends. And maybe you'll meet like somebody you want to have like a more romantic, you know, relationship with. But I just resent that I didn't see through that, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, here we are now, pulling back the veil. Oh, veil. Oh. Uh, people, <laughs> oh. Look what we're doing. This is all we <laughs> All right. So, um, thank you so much, Veil. This was absolutely brilliant. I've just, I feel like I've just had a, I, I, I don't know. I just feel like I've had a massive, massive um, orgasm <laughs> and a massive, massive like whoa you've just shifted me slightly you've just shifted myself slightly there so i just want to can you please tell us what the, um so first of all what's your dad's name oh um william robert fletcher william so we will dedicate we, this oh that's sweet of you that's we'll so sweet of you. William. Yeah. william robert fletcher billy bob billy um, bob i was just gonna say billy bob <laughs> oh. um, yeah. and what's the dog's name Oh, Ruby Tuesday. Oh, Ruby Tuesday. So we'll- Yeah, we'll, Rolling Stones there. Yeah, gorgeous. Um, so we'll, we'll, um, we'll dedicate this episode to those two. Also, please tell us what the name of your book is again. Oh. Where can we find it? Well, it it's, it's an academic book. So I don't think anyone wants to actually, but if you want to even just go look at the table of contents, you can, it's available on well, Amazon. I have academic clients and friends who would absolutely, I have a radical feminist in my group, in my coaching group. So she would absolutely love this. So it's called Communicating in the Anthropocene. Intimate Relations. It's, um, it, there's great. There's all types of really beautiful conceptual ideas like vigilant mourning and the Manthropocene, you know, really framing the Anthropocene as like a, a man's sort of problem. Um, yeah, it's good. You know, there's, uh, we have a few, we have quite a few contributing authors too that look at decriminalizing nature. You know, one thing I wanted to say to you, Sarah, and I know we're over now, but no, no, please. the role of like mushrooms and aiding trauma you know, and I don't know how much you guys are talking about that in either Japan or in England, but in the United States, they're fi they're finding in like incredible studies that when you consume certain types of mushrooms, you actually mushrooms do this interspecies collaboration. Mushrooms actually do the work to help you cope and heal from previous trauma. And I could like so we have a whole piece in there. Do you mean psychedelics and psychotropics or just normal mushrooms? I'm, I'm talking about like psilocybin. What is it? Psilocybin? Yeah. 
Yeah, that one, that one specifically. I'm not talking about just table mushrooms. Uh, okay, so I, uh, that's interesting. Um, I am interested in that kind of stuff, but I'm also uh, suspicious of it being commodified by oh, sure, white sure. tech dudes. So yeah. that's a whole other conversation about oh, yeah, no, totally. microdosing and all this kind of stuff. Anyway. But I think the idea of sort of decriminalizing nature is really- Ah, yes. Right? When so I first moved to Japan, Magic mushrooms were not illegal, so you could just buy them in Shibuya by the park. They now are illegal. Yeah, they got they got criminalized just uh, not long after I I came here. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I'll leave that there. <laughs> so, um, what was I going to say? Um, oh, the other books that you mentioned as well. So, communicating in the Anthropocene for my uh, feminist and academic listeners and friends, yeah. I shall definitely be flagging that up for my for those people. It didn't uh, start with you. It didn't um, start with you. Who's that by? I don't actually know, but I can no send problems. it to you. I, I actually know I know that book title, but that one's a popular book. The Body yeah. Keeps the Score. Body Keeps the Score. I I definitely recommend people uh Mad Farmer, the poem Mad Farmer Liberation Front by Wendell Berry. Yeah, I've got that down here. That, that poem alone, Sarah, I might email it to you. It's just a poem you need to read. Because okay. it's really, it's, it's helpful in talking about intimacy. And then Bell Hooks, All About Love. Bell Hooks. Now, do you know why she doesn't capitalize her first name, her first, her first initials? I'm always um, interested in this. Sorry. You just, just something like she's trying to, oh, sorry. I think she has an academic reason. I think she's just trying to decenter or like diminish herself, right? Like I'm just lowercase bell. You know, no big deal. Oh, interesting. I thought it was something about smashing the patriarchy, but there you go. Good. That's my assumption. No, no, that's just that. No, I, I'm genuinely asking you because I, I, I've not spoken aloud about this woman before, but she's on my radar. But I was always interested as to why she didn't capitalize her. Well, I also, I didn't mention this book, but I'm reading this book by Sylvia Federici whose uh, book, Beyond the Periphery of the Skin, Rethinking, Remaking, and Reclaiming the Body in Capitalism, which okay. is just so fascinating. Say, say that again, please. It's Beyond the Periphery of the Skin, yeah. Rethinking, Remaking, and Reclaiming the Body in Capitalism. Sweet. And it's Sylvia Federici, and she's an incredible, like she's hitting it out of the park. Um, she covers and like it would be a great book for a book club. It's academic, but it's very popular press as well. Um, she talks about sex work and um, reproductive stuff, body politics, all sorts of really interesting stuff. Stuff. Gorgeous. Sarah, I'm, I feel bad I didn't get to ask you any questions, but I, I'm assuming no, because that's the format. about you today. And I mean, this, this has just really, really highlighted to me the importance of having these kinds of conversations yeah. and recording them. Because, mm -hmm. you know, as we know, we don't get to retell these stories over and over and over again because we're not sitting around campfires and because there are so many other distractions in the world. But it's just solidified how important. I think these conversations are and how important it is just for for me in my own world to sit with them and I get to listen to this re-listen to it pause make notes you know and, and then I'll re-listen to it yeah. again if I find it really fascinating which I have done with many of the other ones that I did well just I just want to say thank you to you it's um 
incredibly touching and I think really just a beautiful gift that you're giving to not only like the women or the people you're interviewing and talking to, but your audience as well. And I'm sure you have a lot going on. So the fact that you're making time for this is like a very generous thing to do. So thank you for doing it. I appreciate you saying that. It's a, it's a delight. It's a hobby. <laughs> So and it supports my coaching because I don't want to I don't want to do a I don't want to do a podcast and this is great if this is what you do by the way because I listen to these kind of podcasts but I don't yeah. want to spoon feed coaching to people all mm -hmm. I want to do is share the stories of other people that give some context to the coaching that I that yeah. I do it gives context to it and texture and, and and weaves the stories together so that people have some kind of yeah, some kind of context, some kind of backdrop against which they can put the coaching and psychology yeah. models that I teach, not yeah. teach, but share and uh, yeah. you know, pass down through my uh, academic lineages. Thank you, Vale. It's been Thank absolutely you, brilliant. Everybody has stories and I want to tell them and there are many, many ways to lead a life. And thank you so much for oh sharing yours with us today. Oh absolutely my. brilliant. And Thank you for Ruby Tuesday and William Robert for uh, for being with you in your in your ecosystems. I don't yeah. know them. Best okay. plan ever, you know. Okay, Sarah, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. I'm very flattered. Okay, bye. bye. Thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the Sarah Furuya Legends podcast. Hop over to sarahfuruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, Legends interviews and conversations. Also, you can like and subscribe over on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. I absolutely love these interviews and these conversations I have with these people. I don't care about subscribers, if I'm absolutely honest. It just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story. Buoyed up by the stories of these people, I would call them ordinary, they're not. But these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Furuya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Furuya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.